Last week, we heard about Lawn Chair Larry. Uh, everyone remember Lawn Chair Larry? If you missed it, go listen. That's a pretty, pretty good story. Uh, today, I want to introduce you to Henry Comstock. Does anyone know who Henry Comstock is? Raise your hand if you know who Henry Comstock is. Is this working here? There we are. Okay. So Henry Comstock, um, he, he was an owner of the Comstock load. So Henry Thompson, or sorry, Henry Comstock, he's born in 1820. He owned the richest silver deposit in American history. Henry Comstock was looking for gold, but he didn't find much. His claim did contain some gold, but the miners were unable to get to it because of an abundance of bluish clay. And as it turns out, this clay was silver of exceptional purity. In fact, the ore was so soft it could be removed by shovel. So if you think about on your land and you just take a shovel, you dig a couple mil right there, or dig a couple mil right there. Initially, the ore was extracted through surface digging, but these were quickly exhausted and miners, they began to tunnel underground to reach larger ore bodies. Uh, unlike most silver ore deposits, which occur in long, thin veins, uh, long, thin veins, those of the Comstock load occurred in masses, huge masses of silver, often hundreds of thick, feet thick. Excavations were carried out to depths of more than 3,200 feet. And Henry Comstock owned it all. And um, so this picture just is kind of about, you know, what it might look like. Uh, mining and, and boring deeper and deeper to get to that wealth. So the total product of ore extracted and milled in the Comstock district in 20 years was about 7 million tons, the weight of 19 Empire State buildings. So in one year alone, the mines produced over 14 million of gold, 21 million of silver in 1820. So that's 361 million today, 541 million um, in silver. So, so needless to say, Henry Comstock was a wealthy, wealthy man. A true rags to riches story. Just like you and I, for those who are in Christ. So remember Henry Comstock, you know, a miner who went from rags to riches and owned the wealthiest silver uh, load in, in, in history because we're going to revisit his story. But for now, let's open up to Ephesians. We're in Ephesians, God's grand plan for the church. And we're going to um, keep going. So Josh has given us the first two talks, covered chapter one. So we're in chapter two of Ephesians. I'll have the text up here, but if you, if you have an old school hard copy, feel free to open that up. And uh, if you want to follow along on your phone, you're more than welcome to as well. But as always, it'll be up here and also be posted online later, all the notes. So Paul continues in Ephesians 2 to this group of churches in the area of Ephesus. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live or which you used to once walk. So that word live is actually the word for walk. So you used to walk in the way of death when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Spirit either being the, the devil himself or the spirit of this age in which we once walked, the, the Ephesian believers once walked. 
All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So when Paul writes this to the, his, this audience, they don't receive this news and, and they're not like, oh, dang it. Like, this isn't new to them. They understood the way in which they used to walk. Now, to a, a, an American audience, a modern audience, we have to do a lot of convincing at times that, in fact, there is something wrong in the world and something wrong with humanity that actually needs fixing. And I was thinking about, you know, here in Kansas, we often have tornadoes, right? And our kids often have tornado drills. Well, there's a big difference between a tornado drill where there's no actual threat and an actual tornado where there is a threat. And I've, I've often looked out and seen uh, when a tornado is fast approaching and I'll see a runner just running with their headphones on. Has anyone seen that happen? Where everyone is taking cover because there is a huge threat approaching and they're oblivious to it. So they don't feel the, the reality of the threat, but that doesn't remove the reality of the, the danger that they're in. And I think culturally speaking, it's difficult for us, for many of us, to feel the fact that something is in fact deeply wrong and we need outside help to help fix it. In Romans 2, uh, 14 to 16, I think I have this up here. Um, I actually don't have it up here. Um, if so, if you think about, okay, yeah, the, the, the Jewish people had the law, so that showed them what was wrong with them. Well, in Paul's writing to people who were actually Gentiles, and in Romans 2, we read that, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. He's kind of making a case that even people without the Jewish law or the Old Testament, they still understand that there's something about the way in which they should live that they try to follow. And it goes on, they show that the requirements of the law are actually written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness, their thoughts sometimes accuse them and other times defend them. So even people without the law of God, sometimes when they're doing something, they're like, okay, that was right, that was good. But at other times, they're doing things they're like... That wasn't good. That was actually wrong. That's, it's, that's built into human cultures. And uh, Paul says, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. So all of us need to own our piece of the mess for when we look around this world and we see the hurt and pain that we have caused and has also been caused and done towards us. Like we all have a piece of that mess, even if it's 1%. Right? You can at least say, yeah, I have not walked perfectly. Every human comes, needs to come to the conclusion that I need help to be the person that I should be. And Paul's just given them a reminder. Remember, you guys used to walk in this way, the way of the world. So that, that, that's kind of the, the bad news, right? For the good news to stand out and to feel and be good news, we have to understand the bad news, the, the, the tragic news, the difficult news. But praise God, the, the passage goes on. Paul continues. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. God's riches at Christ's expense. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And here is God's grand plan for the church. We walked in the way of the world, but now, because of Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, we are actually united with Christ and raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father. And this will show for all of eternity God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing in history. That's the story that he's writing. That is our place in the story is to declare the riches of God's grace. In Hebrews 1, uh, we read about uh, this sitting down at the right hand of the Father where, where the Hebrew author says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He did a really uh, difficult task. He worked really, really hard. He said, it is finished. And then he takes his rest at the right hand of the Father. And so we hear this, and the, the, uh, the human nature is to say, well, great. If, if we're with Christ and everything's paid for, should we just keep sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul says, by no means, we are those who have actually died to sin. How can we live in it longer? And he uh, talks in Romans 6, verse 3, he says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this is not talking about the water immersion that, that we publicly declare our faith, uh, declare the inward reality of faith in Christ publicly. This is talking about a mystical union with Christ. Somehow, when you put your faith in Christ, you have been baptized or put into Christ. Baptism just simply means immersion. So the the original word for baptize actually came from a piece of cloth that you would put into dye, and when it comes out, it's been dramatically changed for all of eternity. It's now taken on the identity of that dye. So we were placed into Christ, which means we shared in his death. When he died, we died. It says we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Do you feel this reality that you are placed into Christ? He died, you have died, he's raised from the dead, You are raised from the dead, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Do you feel that? I think that's one of our biggest challenges, and Josh touched on it last last week, that there's a boredom that creeps in because we don't feel the realities that Scripture teaches us about who we are and what we have in Christ. Who feels the fact that the Kansas City Chiefs are Super Bowl champions? Do you feel that? You watch, did anyone watch the draft and get hype? Come on, guys. We, yeah, I mean, K-State won the Big 12, but the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Everyone on that team got a ring. 
no matter what position they played, even if they were traded away, I believe they all get a ring. The whole city, everyone who wears the shirt, wears the hat, celebrates the victory of the Kansas City Chiefs. And we feel that. So the, the draft shows up in Kansas City and there's thousands and thousands of Chiefs fan and Kelsey and Mahomes come out. It's a little bit cringy, but they're pumping up the crowd. Eric Stone, did you all watch this? Are you paying attention at all to sports ball? I, I felt it. I'm like, I, I'm from Kansas City. I want to be there. I want to celebrate. I want to feel it. I didn't do anything to win that victory, but I feel the results of that victory. I feel it. Wasn't that long ago. Patrick's my boy. I'm getting a haircut just like him. Uh, snuck that in there. Some people have commented. But we share in the Chiefs Super Bowl victory, and we feel that. That's why we cheer. But the scriptures teach us that we are united with Christ. We share in his death, but more than that, his resurrection, his victory. One verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So here we have the fact that you are born onto this planet. You have been indelibly marked by Adam's actions years and years and years and years ago. Now, are you angry with Adam? If you have any problems in your life, if you have any maladies that you, you struggle to overcome with, any besetting sins, any trials and tribulations, if you're going to blame anyone, blame that man, Adam. Do you, do you feel that anger? No, we, we don't really feel that anger. It's, it's so long ago. I don't know the guy, but yet the scripture teaches us, as in Adam, all who've come from Adam, all die. Adam made choices, and those choices have marked your life more than you can even know. Yeah, when we talk about sin and people point out sin, it's like, that's bad, but you have no idea. It's even worse. In fact, I don't, I, by the grace of God, he slowly, sanctification is him slowly revealing to me the areas where I need to grow as I can handle it, as I embrace grace. Anyone here done a genogram? You don't feel like you have to raise your hand. It's kind of something a therapist might have you do or um, your doctor might have you do. Uh, a genogram is a diagram outlining the history of the behavior patterns uh, of your family over several generations. So it might show you where there's divorce, maybe a pattern of divorce or of abortion or suicide or mental health issues it could, or even other diseases might be there. So you can look and see what you're dealing with uh, as a person living now. You look back and you see, wow, people in my family made really hard choices that really impact me today. So yes, we have freedom, we have freedom of choice, but our actions impact other people. Now, when you look back at great-great-grandma and you may not even realize who has made the choices that impact you at the deepest level, you don't sit here feeling anger, but that doesn't mean the reality isn't there that their choice has impacted you today. When we turn on the news, we see the choices of people around us and we feel anger. Ralph Ural, is that how you say his name, was, was killed in Kansas City. That's starting to hit pretty close to home. I'm, I'm, I'm upset. 
I'm angry with the guy who killed him, even though it doesn't impact me in the same way that maybe my great-grandfather's actions impact me today. And just think of any other news stories. I mean, recently, just Friday, um, a family went over to ask a guy to stop shooting his rifle. Did you hear this news story? It's like the stories get worse and worse, right? And then so this guy says, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and goes and shoots five out of ten people in the home. Um, I'm upset with that guy. I don't like that guy. I'm, fr- I'm angry. But if I'm going to be angry with him, I need to be angry with Adam. Does that make sense? But I struggle to connect my emotion there. But Adam is not the only person whose choice has had a huge impact on your life. Do you feel gratitude towards the choices that Jesus made 2,000 years ago and how they impact you today. That's what we're reading here. As an Adam all die, Adam's choices deeply impacted you. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Jesus chose, and it was a choice. It was hard decision. If you, if you read his story, you follow his journey, uh, he dukes it out with Satan in the, the wilderness. We talked about that. Then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's pleading with the Father, is there any other way? Please take this cup of suffering away from me. But nevertheless, not my will but yours, Jesus chose to go to the cross. Adam chose to rebel against God. Jesus chose to submit to God. And that impacts your life more than you can know or feel right now. So, so much of walking in the way of Jesus is trying to apprehend the reality of your life, considering Jesus' choice to take up his cross and die for you. So that's why we meditate, we sing, we reflect, we take the Lord's Supper, we we do these spiritual practices all to try to help us embrace and live out of that objective reality of the choice that Jesus made and the implications of your life. So we are seated in Christ. I'll ask you all to just close your eyes and count how many times in, through, or under Christ occurs in the passage Josh preached two weeks ago. Ephesians 1, 3 to 13. So just count. There's no command. In fact, there's no command that shows up in Ephesians until chapter 2. And then the command is to remember. It's not until chapter 4 that we get hit with a bunch of exhortations. So listen to this uh, handful of verses and count how many times in, through, or under Christ occurs. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, which he has freely given us in Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
In Christ, we were also chosen in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Amen. How many did you count? Eleven, right. I thought ten, and then I read through, and there was another one I had missed upon reading that over and over and over again. So, so many in our culture and, and even Christian faith traditions want to skip the, the depth and the theology of who we are in Christ and just move straight to the ethics, to the to-dos, all this stuff. But we can't do that. We have to be who we are before we can do what God has called us to do. So like Henry Comstock, you know, in his land, you're going to have to do some digging to mine the wealth that is yours in Christ. So our passage again, um, God raised us up with Christ and he has seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus so he can declare the riches of his grace for all eternity. So our mission, oh, before we do that, anyone want to know what our mission is? Can anyone rattle off the mission of Mosaic Church? The mission of Mosaic Church is? Yes, to unite people in the way of Jesus. Where are we at here? Yes, mission of church is to unite people. In, good job, Antonio. Our worship, give it up for our worship leader, Antonio. Got the mission. Beautiful. Love it. And I love explaining the, the idea of mosaic to people who don't quite know what a mosaic is or trying to, you know, taking all these broken pieces that look very different from one another and putting them together to make something completely beautiful. So the way of Jesus can be summarized um, in three words, which actually serve as the structure of Ephesians. Sit, walk, Stand. So I got this structure from Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was a Chinese church leader and teacher. He worked in China in the 20th century, so he's born in 1903. Uh, he walked in the good works prepared for him. So he was a man of action. I mean, he did the, the good deeds. He did the work. He spent his last 20 years in prison. So he's writing from a place of, of working on behalf of the kingdom of God and suffering and he wrote this little book in 1957 called Sit, Walk, Stand, which is, it's very short. It's a great, wonderful book about the book of Ephesians. And he gives us this structure, Ephesian structure. So the first three chapters are doctrinal, all about our position in Christ. So the, the only exhortation I see in that is to remember, to remember what is objectively true of you, the indicatives about your life. If you put your faith in Christ, these things are true. We must get that before we get to the practical chapters four to six, where then we are called to walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. And then finally, our attitude towards the enemy, because we will face opposition as we sit in the truths of who we are in Christ and we walk in the good works. We will face opposition, at which point we're called to stand firm. So that's a little bit about where we're headed with Ephesians. But today, sit, seated with Christ. So life with Jesus does not begin with walking. It begins with sitting. 
sitting at the feet of Jesus, sitting in the truths of who we are in Jesus, sitting in the truths of what we have in Jesus. In Luke 10, there's this great story about Mary and Martha. Um, If you've grown up in the church or you've read uh, the scriptures, you might be familiar where Martha is running around like a chicken with her head cut off, trying to be a good host. So she's frantic, she's hurried, she's anxious. She wants Jesus to feel welcome. And what's Mary doing? She is simply sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is actually a subversive thing where it was typically men who would sit at the feet of a rabbi. And here's a woman who is sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning theology from this traveling rabbi. And Martha's upset. She's like, Lord, aren't you going to rebuke her? Tell her to get in the kitchen with me. And Jesus, what does he say to her? Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. We must sit before we walk. Watchman Nee uh, says this. I, I thought about quoting the whole book or the whole chapter on sit, but I did not. He says, if at the outset we try to do anything, we get nothing. If we seek to attain something, we miss everything. For Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. That'll preach. (laughs) And he goes on, sitting, it's an attitude of rest. Something has been finished, work stops, and we sit. It's paradoxical but true that we only advance in the Christian life as we learn, first of all, to sit down. And you know those times, like uh, I just cut the grass yesterday and I'm out there working, 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 so I do all the work first, I become tired, and then what do you do after you cut the grass? For those of you that cut the grass, you sit down and you observe the beauty of what's just happened. Um, Unless there's, (laughs) well... My lawn's not that beautiful, but I sit and I have a drink and I, I, I rest, right? All of your weight on the chair or wherever you're resting, sitting, resting. But in my story about mowing the lawn, I, I thought we, we work first and then we rest, right? Well, think about Adam and Eve. They were created on day six, Right? After God had created and done all the work, God did everything, God said, it is good. He creates Adam and Eve. It is very good. And then what are they invited to immediately after? Sabbath rest. God did it all, and they're invited to rest. And then begin the work of walking with God. Of course, things go go wrong. um, But then we come to Jesus after the tragic uh, tragedy between Genesis 3 and, and the New Testament. And in Jesus' case, he does all the work. What does he cry from the cross? It is finished. The work is done. Rest in him. And from that place of initially resting, then we begin to walk. Walk out of that life in Christ. We can't get away from... This, uh, the, the message paraphrase of Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. I, I've seen it pop up multiple times, especially in Josh's preaching and, and mine. And I resonate with this invitation from Jesus. I think now more than ever, um, even now as a 
42-year-old father of two, working a couple jobs, my wife in grad school, trying to, um, if Josh preached on the stages of spiritual development, I'm trying to find out where exactly I am. But I need this invitation from Jesus. He says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Or maybe just working? Come to me, get away with me. You'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Maybe that's a phrase you just need to take away and just meditate on this week. The unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Those are the words of Jesus, who's done the heavy lifting. You know, this language of uh, taking up your yoke, it's uh, two oxen would uh, pull the load. It was really a picture of discipleship, where the older, stronger oxen would do the bulk of the lifting and teach the younger, smaller oxen the way, right? And that's what we have here is Jesus has done the heavy lifting. He's doing the heavy lifting and inviting us to walk alongside him. A little more from our friend Watchman Nee. He says, the first lesson we must learn is this. The work is not initially ours at all, but his. It is not that we work for God, but that he works for us. God gives us our position of rest. Have you ever been over to someone's house and they're working hard to serve you and be hospitable and you get up, try to go to the kitchen and they're like, no, just sit down. I got this. And how relieving that can feel when you really feel that invitation to sit. He brings his son's finished work and presents it to us and then he says to us, please sit. His offer to us cannot, I think, be better expressed than in the words of the invitation to the great banquet in Luke 14 where he says, come, For all things are ready. Our Christian life begins with the discovery of what God has provided. Remember our friend Henry Comstock, who owned the uh, richest silver bonanzas in the whole world? He was a wealthy, wealthy, wealthy man. But guess what? He didn't know it. He had no clue the wealth that was his. He owned it, objectively speaking. He owned that land. But unfortunately for Henry Comstock, he sold all of his claims for under $17,000 before excavation could begin. They still named it after him. The Comstock Lode tells the story of Henry Comstock, the richest man in the world who didn't know what he had and he sold it all for a small, small amount of money. So poor guy, if you read his story, ended up opening trade stores, worked really, really hard, losing nearly all of his property in Nevada, did some other work in Idaho and Montana, lived a miserable, extremely uh, sad life, died a terrible death, without ever realizing he had been extremely wealthy. So nothing is going to touch the wealth that you have in Christ. So the point of that is not, you are wealthy in Christ and you could sell it all away. 
The point of it is you are wealthy. You need to start digging. You need to start mining what you have in Christ, who you are in Christ, and what is yours in Christ, whether or not you feel wealthy right now, whether or not you feel connected to the actions of Jesus on that, the, the hill of Calgary years ago. We are indeed wealthier than we can imagine, wealthier than we can wrap our minds around. That's why we preach. That's why we teach. That's why we do all the things we do is to help us understand what we have in Christ. So from there, we can walk the good works he has for us. Our passage goes on, and this is probably one of the more famous few verses in this book of Ephesians. Paul says, It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is God's gift. He holds it out to you to freely receive. We are God's handiwork, or God's, as I like to put it, God's mosaic. Uh, the, the original language here is we are God's poema, which is related to a poem. We are his poem that he will tell for all of eternity, trophies of his grace. The story, not of Henry Comstock, who owned it all and sold it all, but the story of you and I in Christ, recipients of his grace. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works or to walk in good works, which God's prepared in advance for us. So I'm actually going to invite the, the worship team up and give us some space to reflect and um, consider the wealth that is yours in Christ. For Good Friday, we had a, an art gallery here. It, it was awesome. It was great. Just an invitation to sit and reflect on who we are and what is ours because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I want to invite us to take some time to reflect on this painting uh, by Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. So this painting is by Rembrandt sometime between um, 1661, 1669, and it features, this is the ending of what's commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son found in Luke 15. So it happens to be my favorite uh, of Jesus' teachings. So if you're new, uh, new to, to the church or new to the scriptures, I would encourage you, go open the scriptures to Luke 15. And there's a, a set of three stories there about something that was lost and then found and then the party that happens. So in this story, there are two sons. The youngest son takes his share of the inheritance and squanders it on prodigal or reckless Living. That's what prodigal means, reckless. So the younger son says, Dad, you're great, you're wealthy. I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. And the father gives him his inheritance. Super shameful action for the father. It uh, brought a lot of shame on his family. So the, the younger son squanders all of the father, all the father's wealth that was his, while the older son remains on the family farm working as hard as he can, just working relentlessly. Eventually, the younger son is completely destitute and broken, and he makes a plan to return and work his way back, not into the family, 
The younger son knows that he has, he has caused too much shame. He's not trying to get back in the family just to get, make enough money so that he doesn't starve to death. And in the story, as the younger son approaches the town, um, the father lifts his robe. So think about a, an older Middle Eastern man ties up the loin of his uh, robe or the, 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 yeah, ties up his robe and runs to meet this younger son. Not to chastise him, not to make sure he's going to do it right, but to wrap his arms around him and to shield him from the shame that the rest of the city would heap on him if they saw him. And he, uh, he invites his son back and he throws an extravagant party. He kills the fattened calf. He throws the robe on him, throws the family ring, gives him shoes. It's just the, a picture of, of abundance. And um, here's where Watchman Nee and you can just reflect on this as we come to a conclusion. Watchman E picks up on this parable. And he says, of all the parables in the Gospels, that of the prodigal son affords, I think, the supreme illustration of the way to please God. The father says in the story, it was right to make merry and be glad. It was fitting. I had to do it. The father says, I had to do it. I had to throw the party And in these words, Jesus reveals that it is that in the sphere of redemption supremely rejoices his father's heart. It is not an elder brother who toils incessantly for the father, but a younger brother who lets the father do everything for him. It is not an elder brother who always wants to be the giver, but a younger brother who is always willing to be the receiver. When the prodigal returned home, Having wasted his substance in riotous living, the father had not a word of rebuke for the waste, nor a word of inquiry regarding the substance. He did not sorrow over all that was spent. He only rejoiced over the opportunity the son's return afforded him for spending more. The father was so excited to spend more on the younger son. He goes on, God's so wealthy that his chief delight is to give. Of course, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than receive. God's the happiest of all. His treasure stores are so full that it is pain to him when we refuse him an opportunity of lavishing those treasures upon us. It was the father's joy that he could find in the prodigal an applicant for the robe, the ring, the shoes, and the feast. And it was his sorrow that in the elder son he found no such applicant the end of the story, the, the older son is on the outside, invited to the party, and we're left questioning, is he going to show up or not? And that's the challenge for, for us, for the religious leaders at the time, too. It is a grief to the heart of God when we try to provide things for him. He is so very, very rich. It gives him true joy when we just let him give and give and give again to us. It is a grief to him, too, when we try to do things for him, for he is so very, very able. He longs we'll just let him do and do and do. He wants to be the giver eternally and the doer eternally. If only we saw how rich and great he is, we would leave all the giving and all the doing to him. So I invite you all to stand, uh, and I invite those who will give the Lord's Supper to come up. And the question I'll leave you with is, how will you sit in the reality of who you are and what you have in Christ? How will you do that uh, moving forward from here this week? How will you just sit 
in the presence of Christ. Sit at his feet. Just sit in the reality of who you are, whose you are, and what you have in Christ. And if you don't yet know Christ, I invite you. I would love to talk with you. Um, I would love to connect with you right where you're at talk about the gospel, the invitation to respond to the gospel, or you can even from where you're at, just cry out to God, you know, ask him, is he there? Is he real? Is this apply to you as well? And next week will be uh, Ephesians 2, 1 to 11, and it will start, therefore, remember. So we're, we're invited even next week to remember all that Christ has done for us. So for several weeks now, we've quoted together the Lord's Prayer So I invite you to do that uh, together now. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I invite you uh, to come and take the Lord's Supper for those who've put their faith in Christ. Spend some time reflecting. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.